Hi, my name is Matthew Pernissiero, and I'm the co-director and executive producer of Moment of Truth. They were as close as any father and son could hope to be. I'm lucky to be a part of what he is, what he stands for, and what he's doing right now. This is the father of the most famous athlete on the planet, Michael Jordan. And on his 57th birthday, he was an unidentified dead man in the swamp in the middle of nowhere. The body has been positively identified as Mr. James Jordan. In North Carolina, you probably couldn't find a more famous family than the Jordans. There was immense pressure to solve this case. Police have charged 18-year-old Daniel Green and 18-year-old Larry Demery with first-degree murder. They were paraded into the courthouse for the cameras. I mean, it looked like you were broadcasting the Super Bowl out there in the parking lot. Anything you want to say to the Jordan family? I didn't kill them. Authorities say Jordan died of a single gunshot wound to the chest, but no blood was found in the car. It couldn't have happened as described. They did not find a bullet hole in the chest area of the shirt. And how is it suddenly there when this case comes to trial? I'm trying to stop short of corruption, but maybe I shouldn't. This case was complicated from the very beginning. There had been a history of racial injustice and law enforcement corruption in Robeson County. It is not uncommon in Robeson County for innocent people to be charged just to close a case. The jury didn't hear all the facts. There were people involved who did not want information revealed. It's always the deputy that wins. They start hitting them against each other. I'm starting to believe he's telling the truth. You shot and killed Mr. Jordan. He's wearing the dead man's jewelry. It doesn't look good. Both of us kind of like pawns in a game. There is still so many lingering mysteries to this case. The hardest part is watching the people that you love suffer because they know that you're innocent. In this country, we have an expectation that freedom is a right, and it's not. Freedom is a privilege. I'm fighting for my freedom. It's finally time that someone tells the truth. That is a trailer from the soon-to-be-released docuseries Moment of Truth, and this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, a London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and today we're talking about James Jordan Sr., Michael Jordan's father, who was tragically murdered in 1993 under mysterious circumstances. And talking to us about this and arguably North Carolina's most notorious county is Matthew Pernissiero, the award-winning director and producer of Moment of Truth. So, uh, Matthew, welcome to Factual America. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's great to have you on. How are things with you? Things are good, you know. We uh, are very excited uh, to have this series be releasing on April 2nd, so it's only short while away and excited for uh, people to see what we've been up to for the past few years. Okay, well, excellent. Well, as you say, and as our uh, listeners and uh, viewers have heard or seen, uh, Moment of Truth, uh, it's, as you said, releasing on April 2nd on IMDb TV, Amazon's premium free streaming service. And so congratulations on this finally being released. And uh, is this your feature length uh, or series directorial debut? It is. Uh, I've produced many documentaries uh, yeah. throughout my career. I've been producing for about almost 20 years. And uh, this is, and I've directed a lot of short form documentary projects that we've uh, done in the past, but this is my first long form series or feature debut. So I'm very excited about it. Well, that is exciting. And thanks again. Uh, congratulations again. And thanks for coming on. Um, 
So this is one of those moment of truth. You don't necessarily know exactly what it's about just from the title. So uh, maybe you can tell our listeners what this uh, series is about. Sure. Uh, moment of truth is about the murder of James Jordan and the investigation and trial afterwards that resulted in the conviction of two teenage boys, Larry Demery and Daniel Green. Um, and we tried to take a complete 360-degree uh, view of the case, presenting all of the facts in a way that I don't believe have ever been presented before, uh, using footage that has not been seen in decades or never before publicly, uh, to create kind of almost like a trial itself, the two arguments that have existed around this case as to what, what transpired. It's, there's, this is a case that's been shrouded in a lot of mystery for decades and conspiracy theory. And well, those are interesting on one level. Our true interest in this story was to get to the truth of what actually happened and how this occurred um, because there's a lot of evidence that took place at trial and has come out since that it raises questions about what we were all told 28 years ago. I think you've already now told us why this is, uh, why now, why why it's doc worthy. Um, I mean, it definitely was a heinous crime. It's uh, anyone who, I mean, I was living in the States uh, then. Um, uh, you did describe these mysterious circumstances. And, um, you know, I, I was wary of, uh, we don't have any spoiler alerts here. I mean, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, Daniel Green in particular, one of the teenage boys you mentioned, is uh, has professed his innocence of the murder. Is that uh, that's fair enough to say? I think. And uh, yeah, Daniel's Daniel's you know proclaimed his innocence since the day he was arrested. Um, you know, Larry, uh, who's the other teenager who was charged with the case, uh, charged with the crime, uh, he took a plea deal and admitted his guilt as part of that plea deal. Um, but Daniel's maintained his innocence for, you know, nearly 28 years. Okay. Well, let's start with, um, I mean, the, the victim here. Um, maybe tell us a little something about James Jordan Sr., because a lot of people will have seen The Last Dance recently, and um, certainly for those of us who remember uh, Michael Jordan's career, uh, his dad played quite prominently, certainly there in the, in the early days. Yeah, James was an unbelievable supporter of his children and their ambitions. And, you know, we, we had found this one amazing piece of uh, archival footage, you know, and we could talk a little bit about how we work with archival in this, yeah. in, in this series later on, but that talks about, you know, James and Dolores Jordan were fixtures at every North Carolina mm -hmm. basketball game. And in the state of North Carolina, the Jordan family was immensely celebrated. Obviously Michael, is you know probably one of the most if not the most famous people to ever come from the state of north carolina mm. um but james was a beloved father and a, a beloved individual in the community and it was a great loss i think not just for his family but for the community and it was very shocking that uh, this crime could take place in North Carolina. Some more will come out uh, on both sides here of this conversation. I, I lived in North Carolina for the better part of six years, so uh, in the 80s and early 90s. So um, I am aware of a lot of people in North Carolina who uh, almost saw Michael Jordan as, as, as godlike, really. You know, I mean, as even a potential answer to problems. People, you know, 
every every person who had a very legitimate, reasonable charity charitable thing they were working on would be, hey, what if we write to Michael Jordan? You know, I mean, that was that was part of it. Um, so he is beloved, uh, even those who didn't necessarily go to the same university he went to. But uh, I think. Um, what I found interesting—I mean, there's many things that are interesting. What it what it reminded me of were—and uh, I'm not—you're not making any allegations here—but there's these mysterious circumstances about his his murder. Um, you don't expect every day the greatest uh, of all time uh, basketball player, you know, his dad to be murdered. Uh, but you know, he's missing for weeks, and it's never reported. And he's. I think he even misses his birthday, doesn't he? And it, it's just, it's this kind of, there's, that's, that adds to the mystery, doesn't it? I think a lot of things added to the mystery. I, you know, I think because of the high profile nature of the Jordan family, you know, there was an immediate sensitivity to this. But I think also James, you know, he, he traveled a lot, you know, he, he, he went around a lot. And then you have to remember, this is email in 1983 emails in its early stages you know cell phones are in their early stages it was not commonplace for us to be connected day in day out like we are now and it was not uncommon for him to go on a golfing trip with his friends and not be in touch with anyone for a week or two you know it was these so so it didn't raise any immediate concerns but when he started not showing up for some previously planned events uh, the family started, uh, I believe it was Michael's security detail started looking into potentially what was going on. A, a public investigation was not opened at that time, but Michael's, you know, uh, team started looking into it. Um, when the car was found, when his, his car was found abandoned, um, that is when the, the public, you know, the law enforcement search, uh, took, took place in full. Yeah. And that even when he was first found, his body found, unfortunately, it was, uh, or, you know, he was a, he was a John Doe, wasn't he? I mean, they didn't even realize that that was Michael Jordan's father. They didn't. Um, you know, I think there was a lot of confusion in those early days of the case because there, it was very complicated. You know, uh, his body was found in South Carolina, uh, Robinson County, which is where the crime took place, is right on the border of North Carolina, the southern border of North Carolina and South Carolina. So James's body was found in South Carolina. Um, and the car was found not in Robinson County where the car the crime took place in a different county. Um, so ultimately, and it's so you know it's interesting that they put the pieces together on it you know within a matter of weeks. I think you know when you look at the degree of complication around the case, you had two state level enforcement you know law enforcement agencies, and you had multiple county law enforcement agencies all kind of sharing and pooling information and trying to put together all the different aspects of what could have transpired here, um, and that ultimately led to the interrogation and the arrest of uh, Daniel and Larry. Indeed. Probably be getting in more into this later as well, but I mean, they very quickly zero in on them. And the the thing is, if you do a quick search on this on the internet or whatever, it, it pretty much everything gets presented as it's pretty pretty black and white. These teenagers did it. Stories stories done, isn't it? I mean, it's um, um, and it, there doesn't seem to be on the surface immediately. Do you see any get any wind of controversy really? Yeah, I, I think that that's a, that's a fair statement. You know, the public story was the story that the national media adopted very quickly. And it was mm -hmm. that this was a, a robbery uh, or a carjacking that went wrong. Um, 
and you know that these you know the 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 statements were made that these two boys saw you know james jordan was driving back from wilmington which is where the jordan family is from and uh to their home in charlotte uh you know, which is about a three hour, three and a half hour drive or so. Um, and had gotten tired. It was late at night and pulled over off the side of the highway. And these two young, young men, uh, you know, tried to attempt to rob him and it went wrong and they, and they shot him, um, and, and in cold blood. And that was the public story. I think one of the things you have to look at is even at the time, there were a lot of questions about that story. Uh, and what those questions ultimately resulted in was, has been decades of conspiracy theories. And, you know, when things don't add up in a criminal case, despite the, the public narrative that you're being told, a lot of times it does lead to these kind of conspiracy theory nature, you know, things emerging, uh, you know, and ultimately th- there were things that didn't add up. But it's just not the things that everyone thought they were. Everyone right. thought, oh, this must be tied to some larger narrative. And, you know, and, and series like The Last Dance have, have talked about this already. And, yeah. you know, that was not kind of diving into the conspiracy nature of this was not our intention here. Our intention yeah. was to discover the truth um, of what transpired and how that was obscured. Um, but, you know, it did give birth to all these these theories and rumors. And that's because a lot of things, even at the time, didn't add up and make sense. It's just not what people thought it was. Okay, Those things weren't adding up because of something different. Well, and I want to talk some more about that, if we may. But uh, what sort of one last thing about um, the, the Jordans on this one is that um, I thought was interesting. I, I don't know I'm a bit slow, but I hadn't really put two and two together looking back on that time. But you, uh, you kind of even one of the final episodes, you talk about how this affected Michael Jordan, and I never had even really necessarily tied it directly to his retirement and picking up baseball and and that era of his career. Yeah, I think the Jordan family. This is the greatest loss of their lives. Yeah. It's it's if that happens to anyone, and I think because you know that that that, that changes you in a way, mm-hmm. and I think for us, you know, in approaching this story, we always kept that in mind, you know, and we wanted to approach this with a great sensitivity. This is the patriarch of their family, and he was taken away from them in cold blood, you know, in in a matter of moments, and you have to kind of look at the humanity of those situations and, and treat them with great respect. And, you know, I do believe, you know, Michael's retirement shortly thereafter James's murder, whether it was conscious or subconscious, you know, we'll never know, but James's favorite sport was baseball. He wanted to be a baseball player himself and he loved when his kids played baseball. So I, I think, you know, one of, one of the, uh, journalists that we interviewed made that connection. And I think that there's, you know, something, something to look at there. Yeah. As you said, I think you mentioned James Jordan almost went pro as a baseball player. Um, and I think as you, I mean, your series says at the end, I have watched the the whole thing. Um, you know, you, you have reached out to the Jordans and they've always been, I mean, very private about this in a, in a very, I would say dignified way, to be honest about, about the yes. whole affair. So unsurprisingly, I, they didn't say, yes, let's, we'll go on camera or anything. 
Of course. Yeah, we felt, you know, I mean, my partner in the series is Capital Broadcasting Company, which owns WRAL, um, which is the, one of the largest news networks in North Carolina and the largest in the Triangle area, which obviously covers Chapel Hill and, and the University of North Carolina. Right. So uh, they've been covering Michael uh, as as a athlete since the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. And there's a longstanding you know, respect uh, between everyone involved. And out of that respect, we wanted to offer the opportunity to say, if you, we, we understand that this is difficult and we understand that why you most likely will not want to, but if you wanted to participate and comment, uh, we, we would love to talk to you about it. Uh, Michael and the family have only talked about this a handful of times over the past three decades. So they, they threw a spokesperson respectfully declined uh, to, to participate in an interview and we've respected those wishes. Um, and, you know, a, a, like I said, they're treating this with a degree of respect. It's such a heinous crime. It's such a sad situation for everyone involved the, and, and such a great degree of loss. That was the only way you could honor this story was treating it with respect. Okay. And it's not the only tragedy, I think, as we find out uh, as yeah. we watch this um, this series. So actually, I'm going to say this. Why don't we take an early break? Um, and we'll be right back with Matthew Perniciaro, director and producer of Moment of Truth. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with director and producer Matthew Perniciaro. Uh, his uh, docu-series is Moment of Truth, uh, releasing on April 2nd. IMDb TV, the premium free streaming service from Amazon. Uh, Matthew, this is going to sound a little cliche because we're talking about a documentary, but one of the main subjects is also uh, Robinson County, isn't it? That's very true. Um, we, in telling this story, I don't believe you could tell this story correctly without telling the story of Robinson County, which is the county where the crime took place. Um, it is a, a long fractured history of violence, racial injustice, and corruption in law enforcement, which, you know, uh, I like a lot of times in the documentary space and when, you, you know, when a lot of filmmakers are looking at telling stories uh, in the true crime space and documentaries specifically, a, a lot of assumptions are made. Um, with this case, due to the nature of it taking place so long ago, a lot of the assumptions that one might have made 25, 30 years ago have come to pass. And, you know, many of the, uh, the, the sheriff's department was embroiled in a scandal where a lot of this corruption that had long plagued the department was brought to light by the district attorney's office. And uh, many, many sheriffs and deputies were charged in that, uh, which was called Operation Tarnish Badge. So knowing that, you know, we, we weren't having to make leaps on a lot of the assumptions we were making. They were based in fact, which was, which is a really interesting perspective when, you know, when you're telling stories such as this. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think so. I mean, um, as you've, as you discussed, it's a, it's a, is it still, I mean, it's at least one of the poorest counties in North Carolina, if it's not the poorest. I think one of, yeah, I yeah. think it, you know, it really depends on, on the year or that five year period, yeah. you know, but it's, 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 Traditionally, you know, one of the poorer 
counties in the in the country. Yeah, and I mean, Eastern North Carolina is traditionally the poorer part of the state, and so it's certainly and it's south southeast. Uh, majority Native American, which is an interesting uh, element to this. The Lumbee Indians I know about. Uh, I guess a third of the population is white and a quarter is African American, and it's had a long. Well, like a lot of counties in the American South, but would have had a, a you know, it's it's had a troubled history, specifically, even more so than than others. Uh, and then this whole thing about the police force. Now, I can, I don't try to personalize these sort of interviews, but I can now speak personally on this. Uh, I used to drive through Robinson County on a regular basis, and I wasn't especially a very religious man at the time, but I would pray that every time I drive through there that I would not get stopped because we all knew. I mean, it was even before Operation Tarnish Shield or whatever it's called. Tarnish Badge, yeah. Tarnish Badge. I mean, you did not want to get stopped in Robinson County. So I would I would be on I-95. I would, whatever speed limit I was doing, legally or not, officially legally, uh, but, uh, you know, you, you hit the, as soon as you hit the county line, I would go under the speed limit. You know, um, and people knew that, you know, it was sort of, uh, I think you you talk about very well. I mean, um, uh, you you know, this, it it so happens to be what, almost exactly halfway between sort of South Florida and New York on on Cocaine Alley, which is really I-95. So the crack, you know, the cocaine, the crack cocaine epidemic really hit Robinson County hard. And so I don't think it's any, you know, there's no, as you say, it's a very interesting place to be to to do a true crime doc, isn't it? To already not only have these suspicions, but it's pretty much all been been confirmed. Much of it has. Yeah, much, and, yeah. much of it has. And, and it is a, a uh, I believe, you know, one could do a, a whole documentary series just on the history of Robson County. And, you know, what we our approach to this and and really looking at all the facts. And once we looked at all the archival material and and, and the interviews, we knew that the history of Robinson County, telling the history of Robinson County Mm -hmm. was going to be such an important part of the story, which is also why we really fought creatively to put that in the earlier parts of the story, because it, for, you know, as you said, you know, Robinson County, I grew up in North Carolina. I know Robinson County, and I know that it's not a place that you won't, would want to ever pull your car over to the side of the road or that you would want to get pulled over by law enforcement because of that history. But we know that audiences don't have that yeah. view and that insight into the county. So we wanted to place it very early in the series because it does kind of inform your understanding of everything that tr- has transpired at, up until that point and will transpire from that point on. And, you know, it is a, an immensely fractured place. It's one of the, you know, most violent places that I, especially at that period of time That's right. that I, that you can think of, um, you know, the highest you know, murder rate in, in the state. And, you know, one of the, the uh, editor, uh, former editor of the Robinsonian newspaper, Donnie Douglas says it was just a bit like the wild West, it, you know, and, and, and I think that that's a fair, you know, comparison for how things were at that period of time. The drug business had taken control. Um, Certain deputies, not everyone by any means, but certain members of law enforcement were involved in that trade. And certain people that come into the play in this story surrounding this case were involved in that trade. So what we've always wanted to do from the beginning is use the crime and the killing of James Jordan 
as kind of a gateway into a larger conversation about corruption in law enforcement uh, and ra systemic racism in the criminal justice system, which is really kind of embodied by this crime taking place in this county. It, had it taken place in a different county in North Carolina, had it taken place in Raleigh, where I grew up, or mm -hmm. Charlotte, where the Jordan family lived, it might have been a very different situation. We don't know. You can't hypothesize about that. But specifically taking place in Robinson County led to information being in question because of how certain facts were treated and how certain, you know, elements were given, you know, of evidence were given from law enforcement to the prosecution. You know, I, I think the prosecution tried the, they tried the evidence that they were given. I think the question is, is the root of that evidence. Yeah. As you said, it also further leads to this other sort of conspiracy that's been out there about the mystery around James Jordan's death and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff that people had ideas about maybe being behind this. But as you said previously, uh, anytime you start having these things that just don't add up, then it just people's minds will run, run wild with them. And that's exactly what happened. Right. Yeah. And we saw that, you know, I mean that, and, and we, we use some, you know, some articles and some, you know, information that was released shortly around the time it happened almost immediately. I mean, almost immediately people were like, something must be happening here. And, and it's my belief having spent a lot of time with this story and with this case, that that's because of these things that didn't add up. And, and the story of why those things didn't add up is the part of this that has never been told. Yeah. And so that's part of what really motivated us was bringing those elements to light so people could have a full understanding of, of, of what happened. Okay. And I think this obviously then takes us to the other big main, one of the main subjects of this, this film is obviously um, uh, Daniel Green. Now, I'm a, again, uh, you'll, I'm sure you'll be a, a economize a bit in terms of what you share because we want, you know, you, you'll want people to see the film and for the film to speak, the, the series to speak for itself. But uh, um, is it fair enough to just say that things are not as they have necessarily been reported and he himself is a victim of, of Robinson County? What I would say is the way we present this series, we, we wanted to build it almost like a trial itself. Yeah. And we were very fortunate, you know, because of, you know, some amazing work that had been done, you know, the, by the news team at WRAL starting in the 90s. Um, they're really the kind of authority on tracking this case really, you know, for, for the long periods of time. We had the ability to have materials to work with that no one has ever had access to before. Yeah. And I think if you look at the approach to that, it's really about giving a voice to Daniel because Daniel has not had a voice in this conversation. You know, one, this case was not reported on nationally nearly as much as it was in the state of North Carolina. And here's a person who's maintained his innocence for almost, you know, 30 years. And, you know, that is in, in many cases, but especially ones that are as high profile as this, you would think that would be a bigger national news story with a lot of the social change. And as we reevaluate so many things that were handled uh, improperly in the past, for a variety of reasons, that story has not gotten to a place yeah. of national, of, of, of large national attention. Uh, what, what I always kind of say when asked this question is, I, I'm not a judge and I'm not a jury and I'm not an attorney, you know, because mm. it, it's not our job as documentarians, I believe, to kind of make that determination 
at the law. It's our job to be the vehicle to present all the facts and allow the audience and the viewer to come to their own beliefs as to what happened. I think what, where I end up personally, and I am comfortable in saying this, is I believe there's enough question of fact that a new hearing is something that should be granted because there is enough evidence and there are enough things in question as opposed to what was presented or in, in some of the things that were not even allowed to be presented during the original trial that have come out since and, and statements that have come out since from other individuals who were involved who didn't speak at the time of trial. I think that a new hearing is warranted. I think you do that very well. I mean, and you know, You've, you've even got the uh, the DA on who comes on. You know, I I thought that was quite impressive. I mean, he you know, and he obviously believes he's got the right, you know, and when you're talking about Daniel Green, you know, he has his views, and uh, but he's very upfront about it as well. I thought that was uh, extremely well done. Thank you. And look, and it's a real testament to, you know, uh, also the team, you know, the team of journalists that, uh, that we work, you know, I worked with in creating this, Clay Johnson and Jay Jennings, uh, Shelly Leslie kind of leading that team from a producerial standpoint. And, you know, I think working with one of the larger news networks in the state, there, there's a history of reporting facts that is very celebrated, you know, in the state of North Carolina. And I think, therefore, people were very willing to speak about this. I, knowing that the story would be told with a degree of integrity, Johnson Britt, the district attorney, is absolutely convinced that he got the right guy yeah. in convicting Daniel. And, and that's his opinion. Mm-hmm. I believe that with the evidence that he was given, that if you were given the same degree of evidence and you're a prosecutor, that might, may be your belief as well. You know, a lot of people try to look at this case and say, well, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? And I don't, I think there it's not as simple as that, yeah. right? We live in a very yeah. gray, in gray areas in our society. And this is a case that fully exists in those gray areas. Yeah. I think Johnson Britt was elected to be the district attorney and he was doing his job as a prosecutor in that case based on evidence that was provided to him. Um, I, I think the question is, is the evidence. Yeah. And I think the question is, is, you know, when you look at these things that, you know, with, with a, you know, almost 30 year difference in, in, in view yeah. of how society was then. I think you look at the jury, it was a very compromised verdict. Um, people convicted, you know, the jury convicted Daniel, but they didn't necessarily believe yeah. the testimony that convicted him. And, you know, so I think there's always been question about this case. And that's what we really strive to do is present all of those questions in a concise manner and then allow the audience to go on that journey and have a real understanding of both sides of the argument. Like I said, we, we treated, we structured the series like a trial, you know, um, you know, there's almost two prologues. There's the, the investigation and the discovery of the murder. There's the history of Robinson County. And then once we're in the final three episodes, we're really kind of entering a trial. The prosecution goes first, the defense comes second. And, that's by design because they, we, there's going to be people who come out on both sides of this. Some people are going to say, oh, yes, those two teenagers are guilty. They did it. And then some people are going to say, no, there's something we need to look, in more here, look into more here. And, and that's, that's what life is, right? Yeah. So, that, so as a documentarian, that, that was our goal, you know, to present all sides of it. So having Johnson Britt's voice in that conversation, as well as Daniel's post-conviction uh, attorney, Chris mm-hmm. Mumo, who's fighting for his innocence. Mm-hmm. You need both sides of that argument if you're going to tell the full story. Yeah. And I think in 
fairness to Johnson, Brady even acknowledges mistakes he made, you know, in trying yeah. that. And he's very upfront about that. Um, and I think one, one last thing I'm going to ask about one thing that comes out of this, I think, at least for me, because I've seen a few of these uh, true crime docs of kind of a similar similar line of, you know, do you have an innocent man, you know, has he been convicted wrongly or certainly of a particular cr the crime in question? It's this, um, if anything, and I don't know if you want to speak to this, but I think police just have to get training, better training on how you really should interrogate um, potential the perpetrators uh, because it's this it's this I've seen it elsewhere where it's always this kind of they're so they latch on to this is the these are the what maybe even rightly you know whether they're whatever was going on maybe they do legitimately think these two are the ones but then the way they elicit the confessions and everything is just um, it's so suspect sometimes I agree with you I, th I think that there's I think many of those aspects are suspect and I would imagine I, again I'm not an expert in police testimony but I'm only you know uh, have an understanding of what transpired in this case because of extensive research and reading the logs and going through all the tapes um, I, I don't know if the practices have improved in any way shape or form since this period of time i don't know if it was specific to tactics that were used in this area of the country that you know maybe would not be acceptable today uh but there are a lot of issues with the interrogation it's something that we we revisit mm. a couple different times throughout the course of the series and reveal more pieces of information from that interrogation that resulted in kind of this public story i think it's also something to be said that you know, these two individuals, these two teenagers were known to law enforcement, specifically Larry. Mm. Um, he had a history of, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, that crack cocaine and the co and cocaine coming up yeah. by 95, you know, really took root in Robinson County. It's, it's an area where, you know, uh, people would swap vehicles and, you know, that it was, it was known on the route for drug smuggling mm. and Larry was involved in that. Yeah. You know, and that's not a that's not a matter of assumption. That's a matter of fact. Um, he was involved in the drug trade, and law enforcement was involved in the drug trade. We've come to learn, you know, uh, over the years. So while we don't know what their interaction was with one another, it was known. And Daniel mentions this at one point, and it really struck me is that Larry would get pulled over by the police and then let go. You know, uh, one of the things that I noticed which really I found shocking is when the police are when law enforcement, when the sheriff's department is walking Daniel and Larry in and out of buildings, Daniel's in handcuffs. Larry is not. And I think most shocking, Larry was allowed to go home while he was still in the, well, he was still in the sheriff's department, you know, jail awaiting to be transferred. He was allowed to go home and have dinner with his family on Sunday nights. I had never heard of anyone who had been charged with first degree murder that was allowed to leave jail to go have dinner with their family at, on Sunday nights. So I, th there's a lot of questions here and there was a lot of, it started in that interrogation where it was decided who, who was going to get treated one way and who was going to get treated a different way. Mm -hmm. And so I do believe that, you know, if those types of practices are still existing, that's definitely something we need to look at as a society. And, and, and that starts with the training, as you said. I think, yeah. you know, I, I think that's a big, for us, 
that's really the largest part of this, right? Like I said, the, the, the crime is a gateway mm-hmm. to this larger story of flaws in our criminal justice system yeah. and flaws in our law enforcement. And the fact that we're still seeing these, you know, we were very heavily, you know, deep in the edit of the series when everything came to light last summer in the murder of George Floyd. And it was just such a sobering reminder of how little progress we've made, despite the fact that we think we've made so much progress as a, as a, as a society and as a culture, it just shows how far we still have to go yeah. and, and working and telling this story, especially like I said, as we were editing after, you know, everything came to the forefront of the public conversation last summer, it just was, like I said, it was a very sad reminder that mm. we, need, we need to relook at everything. Yeah. I think, I think that's what strikes, I mean, almost, almost all of us is that here we, you know, here we go again, it seems like. And as you say, in that context, I mean, I want to ask you, how did this, you've mentioned uh, WRAL a few times, uh, saw yeah. appearances by people I even remember from my days yeah. there. Uh, how did this film come about? Was this something, because they, they, I hadn't put two and two together, but, you know, because early on, you know, the journalists say, the broad say something like, well, this is why we wanted to bring this story to light. And then it's slowly, I realized, no, wait a minute. And then put two and two together, capital broadcasting, yeah. uh, that this is something that, uh, did they approach you? How did this come about? So, so I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. I, yeah. I moved to North Carolina, uh, late eighties. We started moving in the late eighties, but officially was living a full time in, the, in, in 1990. Okay. So I, I lived there at this period of time where, as you said, you know, this was a massive story and I was there up until I went to college. Um, back in new york which is where i was originally from and uh jimmy goodman the goodman family has you know owned uh capital broadcasting since its inception in the 1940s uh the family goodman family um and jimmy goodman who's one of our executive producers on the series he was the real impetus for the idea of this series um he uh had reached out to me we we went to high school together we've been friends Mm. you know since since the 90s and uh and his brother michael his brother michael and i were I, Jimmy was older than me, so he was like the cooler guy. I, Michael was a year younger than me, so Michael and I were actually better friends uh, growing up. But uh, Jimmy had seen, obviously, a lot of the documentary work that I've done as a producer over the years right. and said, hey, you know, we have this massive archive, and I don't think anyone even knew that this existed. Most local news networks didn't keep their tapes. They didn't keep their archives yeah. from from the previous decades, you know, because just because of the volume of storage space and the maintaining it in climate controlled environments. And they did. WRL did. And so when they got to digitizing the 90s, you know, it was 2018, the 20th, 25th anniversary of the crime was coming up. And he said, hey, you know, I have my news team working on this. And as I mentioned, you know, some amazing, you know, journalists working out of that station, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Clay Johnson, who I co-direct episodes one and two with, right. um, Jay Jennings, who was a co-editor, and uh, Cliff Baumgartner, who was close cinematographer and, and worked as an archivist on the series as well. Just amazing Emmy award-winning news team uh, out, of, out of WRL. And so they, they had kind of started kind of gathering this as something that potentially was going to air on the network at first. And then Jimmy called me on, on their network. And then Jimmy called me and was like, look, as we're kind of putting the pieces together on this thing, I just think it's so much bigger. And he started telling me about this archive. He started telling me about some of the interviews that they had already secured, you know, and, and, and they had banked in their, you know, in, in their archives. And I was like, 
this is definitely bigger. So that's when I got involved mm. and really, you know, uh, we started working together as a team to create this series. And, and um, it's been an amazing journey. I mean, it's been, you know, you know, these series, we were working and then COVID obviously happened, which slowed everything down, you know, and limited uh, what you could do from a production standpoint and a travel standpoint. Um, we actually did the majority of the edit for the series in COVID. Um, but yeah, that's how it came to be. It was really a high school friend called me up and said, Hey, I have this, we're working on this. What we had this idea to do something with this. What do you think? And I was like, yes, I, I absolutely want to be a part of it. So then that very organically grew into, mm. you know, uh, co-directing and then directing the final three episodes myself. Okay. I mean, I think the, as you mentioned, the use of archives, I mean, you weren't living down there yet, but I was there during the standoff at the Robisonian. And I thought yeah. that was, uh, I brought back a lot of memories because I remember when that happened. Um, but I think, so you have this, so I was going to ask you about this. So you, you did, as you said, most, most of the post-production uh, under COVID, but you were, you, I guess you got a little bit lucky because it seemed to me a lot of the film, you did get a lot of filming done. Yeah, a lot of the filming was done prior, yes. And we were actually, a, we were filming, uh, I mean, pretty much up until we, we had shut down. You know, uh, you know, we were, I think one of the last interviews with Amanda Lamb was filmed mm. in late February or first week of March. I mean, it was this, it was the following week, um, you know, that we, uh, we ended up having to shut everything down and move yeah. to a virtual work environment. But, uh, and, and look, there were more interviews that, you know, had COVID not happened that I've, I would have loved to have gotten. Um, but we, we pivoted and we made it work. We did a lot of audio interviews from that point on. Um, and, you know, so, so we could mix that with some of the, the footage that we had, you know, if we had follow up questions, a lot of times, you know, when we're making documentaries, you, you know, you realize, oh, we need to address this item or that item that's, mm -hmm. you know, have someone explain more. So, you know, sometimes there'll be second interview shoots um, in different environments. But in this case, we could do those via audio and ask additional questions. So that was that was great. And uh, yeah, we were very fortunate. Um, to have the degree of access that we have to have the degree of footage, but it was funny. I mean, a lot of this stuff, like, you know, I, we didn't get a chance to go do an additional B roll shoot, which is something that had always been planned. So I would call cliff and I'd be like, okay, like you just have to go out like one man in a camera and like, here's the shot list. And he'd go out and get some of these, you know, drone shots and get some of these exactly. exteriors. And, uh, he'd, he'd, he'd FaceTime me from his car from wherever and say, Hey, look at the camera angle. And I say, okay, great. Yeah, that's great. The elementary school, you know, exterior. And so we were just, we were doing it all virtually and we figured out how to make it work. And we're, we're extremely proud of where, you know, not just extremely proud of the series itself, but, you know, it was a pretty Herculean task to kind of see it through to the end. So we're very proud of being able to to make it this way. And so, and as you've already mentioned, you've got this uh, long, well, long career for someone who's so young, by my standards, um, of uh, producing. But why did you decide to to direct? I mean, well, I'd I'd always uh, wanted to direct for a long period of time. Um, you know, I've I've produced many documentaries. Um, you know, the first documentary I ever produced, you know, I'm very, I'm very fortunate. I, I, I kind of took a very uh, sideways path into the entertainment business. I, I dropped out of college when I was 19, which I don't advise anyone to do because it's not <laughs> an easy road, but I, uh, I was going to NYU and um, I, I dropped out of college because I'd read like that Paul Thomas Anderson dropped out of college. And I was like, Hey, if you can do it, and I, if you can drop at NYU, I can drop at NYU. And I moved to Los Angeles in 1999 
kind of packed up my car and, and my uncle lived out here. So he was like, you can crash on my couch while you figure out what your next steps are going to be. And mm-hmm. I just started working on, on sets and, and originally came out to LA thinking that I would be a, a writer and a director. Um, and as I was working on sets as a PA and starting, I worked in, uh, for a distribution company for a number of years and, um, realized that producing was something that I, I loved and like loved the idea of doing. So I just started making movies and I produced my first movie when I, when I was 23. Um, so it, it's, that was where my career came from, but you know, I always still wanted to direct. I always still wanted to write and I would direct a lot of the short form documentary content we would produce. You know, we would, we did a, you know, uh, my company would do a bunch of series, you know, for Marvel, you know, um, we did a bunch, you know, a series with ta Coates about the, his, his run on the black Panther, right. uh, called a nation under our feet. And, you know, I directed that. And so I, I, I was directing, but I wasn't kind of taking credit for directing. And then when Jimmy reached out to me about the story and I really started delving into, you know, outlining it and restructuring it and looking at what footage existed, what we needed to add, what we needed to get, you know, and I just, I I just felt so connected to it, having come from that place and lived there at that time. And and honestly witnessed so many of the things, the themes and the things we're going to be talking about in this series with my own eyes at a young age, which really informed who I wanted to be and the types of films I wanted to make and stories I wanted to get out in the world. I just, I was really passionate about directing it at that point. So and did you enjoy it? I did. I absolutely loved it. Um, you know, I mean, I, I love producing and I'm still going to continue producing as well. And it's not like, oh, I'm just putting, taking that hat off permanently and putting the director hat on solely. But I'm, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, and it's something that I'm definitely going to continue doing as a, in moving forward in, in conjunction with my producing. And, you know, with, with documentaries, uh, which is something I love. You know, I produced my first documentary. We started filming it in, well, we started really, the, the filmmaker had filmed uh, some footage prior, but, you know, which is very important footage. Uh, it's a film called More Than a Game about LeBron James. Right, right. Um, and uh, the director on that, Chris Bellman, had actually followed them their senior year. He started, he started that as a school project that was that, that then he was living in Los Angeles and said, I have all this footage. And I was like, yeah, that's very important footage. Uh, and, and, uh, so that was the first documentary I ever produced. And it, it mm. premiered Toronto 2008 and then came out in 2009. But I'd always loved documentary. I always knew I wanted to produce documentary. That was my first. And um, it became part of my practice and as a producer to always have documentaries, at least one or two documentaries in production and post over the, each year. Um, and I'm extremely proud of the work that I've, I've done. And, you know, we just had a, a film that uh, we produced called the truffle hunters just came out yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then last year we had the fight, which was uh, about the ACLU and uh, a film called disclosure on Netflix, which is all about transgender representation mm-hmm. in media. Um, what I love about documentaries is it allows you to enter into all these worlds. And, you know, I think if you enter into those worlds and you understand the the gravity of, you know, these are real people's lives. So there's a real responsibility, um, to, to telling the stories truthfully. I I, I hope that everyone takes Mm -hmm. the approach to documentary the same way. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but you know, that's always my intention and, you know, being in the director's chair, I get to kind of, you know, be on both sides of that equation. Yeah. 
I think you and you just raised it because I was going to ask you about this because uh, on uh, truffle hunters and uh, the fight and I've heard I've had several people recommend truffle hunters to me so I'm, I'm, yeah keen to see that but uh, you have an executive producer credit so how do you do you is that a how is that different for you or do you is it different for you uh, as producing versus executive producer and what stage do you get involved in when you with those projects. <laughs> It really depends on the project, right? You know, so yeah. so both of those projects, I would say, I was, you know, myself and my company and and uh, Michael Sherman, my business partner, we were involved relatively early, but we weren't. You know, we're based in LA. Um, the fight was shooting in New York. We knew that we weren't going to be day in day out producers, you know. And I do believe that people who put in the work deserve that credit. I think mm -hmm. that credit sometimes. Um, kind of gets handed out for a variety of reasons that is not, you know, uh, the person, you know, anyone who ever asked me is like, what does a producer do? And I, and I always kind of say like, well, if a film wins the Academy Award for Best Picture, the producer is the one taking home the statue because they're really involved in every aspect of the creation of that film, you know, many times, some, and in many cases before even a director is hired, you know, a producer's right. developing material and, um, so, so it's, I really believe that that credit should be preserved for the people that are going to be on set every day, putting in that work and on, on, uh, all three of those films, we knew that we were, we were not going to be, you know, the mm -hmm. ones on set every day. We're going to be involved in more of a advisory capacity and more, you know, I, we weren't able to travel to Italy to shoot Trouble Hunters and Michael and Gregory are the only two producers on that film that they're also the directors and the writers of that film. Mm -hmm. Um, and they deserve those credits because they were the ones in there every day. We were talking to them consistently. We were mm -hmm. going through all the cuts, going through all the footage, going through, you know, doing the work from a creative and from a business perspective, helping kind of structure the film financially, et cetera. But, um, you know, and, and working with them, you know, throughout the process, you know, I, I always say, regardless of what my credit is, you're going to get all of me on um, everything I have to offer. It doesn't, but I do believe that, you know, if I'm not in the trenches day in, day out on the shoot, then the person, someone else should get that producer credit. Um, and I knew on that, on that film specifically, we were filming some other documentaries, which will be coming out later this year that we physically couldn't be present when, when those, uh, mm. specifically to the fight and, um, and Trouble Hunters were, were filming. Okay. And we should give a little shout out to your firm. It's Bow and Arrow Entertainment, right? So uh, I don't yeah, think we've no done a yet. shout out yet for them. Um, any preferences? What do you, or is it just each role is a little different? You like, you know, producing versus directing? Um, I like, and, and this has always been our philosophy at Bow and Arrow, and, and, and it's built off of my philosophy and Sherman's philosophy, or personally, you know, that we like supporting different voices. We like getting voices out into the world that need to be heard. Mm. And, you know, we always say that if you look at the films that we've made, it's a really wide yeah. group. You know what I mean? A lot of times you'll see production companies and they'll say, Oh, they're really good at doing comedies and they focus on comedy or this, this is company's really good at documentaries and they just do documentaries. Or this company's really good at, you know, horror movies and they just do horror movies. We, our interests are varied. We want to, we love all different types of film. So we work with all different types of filmmakers and want to, you know, help bring those films to life. And so we were kind of always equated to uh, if like we were an art gallery and we were curating one gigantic group show, all the paintings on the walls are very different, but 
the through lines of how those decisions were made to participate in those films are similar. And you yeah. see that kind of connectivity between them. Um, I love all roles. I love, I love making films. I've wanted to do this my entire life. Um, so regardless of what my credit is or regardless of if I'm, you know, I, I can only be present in so many places at one time, which I'm aware of, but if I can participate in more films in other capacities and help those filmmakers in other ways, then that, that's what I've always done my whole career. And I, so I love doing all aspects of it. I think that's great. I mean, it, it's even more specialized than you've made it out to be. I mean, I know production companies that only do, maybe they only do music docs or maybe they only do uh doc series or you know or true crime or whatever it starts you know and for companies get pigeonholed that way too yeah i mean you know i think early in my career i was always like i'm never going to get pigeonholed i think maybe part of it kind of came from that place and i think kind of as i actually started making films and started working in different environments with different types of filmmakers and different stories i realized that I just loved every aspect of it. You know, some of my favorite mm -hmm. films are documentaries. Some of my favorite films are, you know, I, you know, Silence of the Lambs is technically a horror film. It's one of my favorite movies. I mean, it's got some, it's got some issues that didn't stick with time, but you know, from a filmmaking standpoint, Jonathan Demme did things. Yeah. I mean, I think he created the modern insert in a way that is like mm -hmm. it changed cinema, you know? And uh, you know, so there's, there's all types of different films. And I think, as human beings, we have different interests, right? So why, why limit yourself to just yeah. one thing? Um, which is an exciting place to approach our world from in entertainment. Yeah. And you've done well from it, but do, do you ever find that is an issue that um, when you go into discussions about with different studios or whoever that they want to, they do want to, I think, I guess that's maybe human nature. We do want to tend to pigeonhole people. So. Yeah. You know. I mean, I think that's, yeah, that's natural, right? I yeah. think like, you know, a lot of times and it happens, I think most with filmmakers, you know, they, you know, if if someone kind of gets in the genre space, they think they can only do genre, you know what I mean? Mm. If someone gets in the comedy space, they only look to them for doing comedy. I, you know, one of the, the great kind of, you know, joys of my life and my career has been working with the, the community at Sundance and the Sundance Institute right. and participating in the Sundance Film Festival. And I'm very fortunate to have had a lot of films play at that festival. And films of all different types you know and I, I think that's one of the things that i think the film festivals give us a great ability to do is to not just discover new voices and new filmmakers um and new actors and artists um across the board but it also allows a, a diversification you know they're curating these selections and they're coming at it from looking at how do we present different types of things than you're going to see directly on um, via the traditional studio system. Mm. And so, so that's, you know, I've always enjoyed too, like when a filmmaker, like let's say there is a filmmaker who's known for doing X and then they go and make their indie film and that's right. why, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's, yeah. you know, I, I think that the fact that that space, that space exists in our community is wonderful. And that's why I also really believe strongly that we have to protect it and we have to make sure that, you know, a lot of people have always said for so long, well, you know, independent film and documentary is, it's not good business. And it's like, well, no, it's just sometimes people don't know how to approach it with a business mindset. Mm -hmm. So, so that was also a big part of bow and arrow was, you know, a lot of times, you know, in my, in my career, I always felt like, oh, I'd produce this job I'd produce this job I produce this job. And then I'd get to every two or three years, produce something I really loved. And I was like, 
so Sherman and I, when we started the company, we were like, well, what if we built a business around producing the films that we love? Mm. And what if we tried to, you know, and that means sometimes smaller budgets. That means paying ourselves a lot less. That means, yeah. you know, not doing things traditionally. But ultimately, I think we were very proud of what we've created over the, you know, the past seven years and in, in, in the films we've brought out into the world. Yeah, and I think you're going to be far happier, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's what it really boils down to is, you know, I mean, I love filmmaking because I love filmmaking, you know, and, and it's independent filmmaking is not an easy job. You know, I, I, it's mm. entertainment in general is not an easy job. I, I remember reading a statistic that it was like a 3% success rate and, um, and success was defined by you can just do that job and not have a second job to support yourself and just pay your bills. Um, I think in the independent world, you would minimize that, <laughs> that right. number substantially from 3% even, yeah. but you know, but it's what I love doing. And I'm, I'm very, I feel fortunate every day and lucky every day that I get to do it. And the fact that that's now circled back for me in my life and my mm -hmm. career back to directing and back to kind of creating, um, in this way, it, it, it's something I feel I'm very appreciative of. And I think about that every day. Okay. Well, I, I hate to say it, but I think we're coming to the end of our time, uh, together, yeah. Matthew, but, uh, before we go, I just wanted to ask, what is uh, next for you or and also for, for Bow and Arrow? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm working on a couple projects um, that uh, I cannot speak about yet. Um, I always, have the case. Yet. always the case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that I cannot speak about yet, but uh, a couple things that we're just getting shooting going on right now that I'm really excited about. I'll come back and I'll, I'll, or I'll shoot you an email or something and tell you all the details. But, uh, Please do. And uh, and from Bow and Arrow's standpoint, we have a, a couple documentaries that we're working on uh, with some really exciting filmmakers as well. So uh, I'm excited to, for the world to find out about those eh, a couple months from now. Okay. Well, thank you once again. It's been a, a pleasure having you on. Uh, to remind our listeners, we've been uh, having a lovely chat here with uh, Matthew Perniciero, director and producer of Moment of Truth. Uh, it will be available on IMDb TV from April 2nd. Thank you for having me. I also want to give a shout out to our engineer, Freddie Besbrode, and the rest of the team at This Is Distorted Studios in Leeds, England. A big thanks to Nevena Paunovic, our podcast manager at Almo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting such great guests like Matthew onto the show. Finally, a big thanks to our listeners and as always, we'd love to hear from you, so please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.